Hello, this is your regular host, David Minot II. It was only a few years ago that several of us who are now working on Planetary Makeover were part of a team producing the show Share on the Air Radio. Many of the topics we discussed during the show's run between 2015 and 2017 are as true today as they were then. So for this particular episode of Planetary Makeover, we decided to compile two interviews that Share on the Air radio host, Diana Gold Holland, did in a row. One of Alyssa Graff about her experiences with UFOs, and one of Planetary Makeover producer Francis Ullman, who has a history of documenting miracles, including the crop circles that have been shown to be made by UFO craft. Now, let's step outside of time for about an hour with Diana Gold Holland interviewing Elisa Graff and Francis Ullman. Without further ado, now let me welcome our guest for today, Elisa Graff. She is an American writer, speaker, and English uh, second language teacher living in Germany and a longtime meditator and student of the Ageless Wisdom teachings. She has been volunteering with Share International for more than 20 years and is a good friend of mine. Now, since childhood, uh, Elisa has had a strong interest in UFOs, and she had her first sighting of a UFO while living in Tokyo in December 1990 when she was in her 20s. Uh, several next experiences occurred all at once of having uh, ships telepathically interact with her in November not 2008 when she was on a 10-day uh, silent meditation retreat in rural California. Uh, her letter about that was published in Share International magazine in March 2009, and we will put the uh, link to that letter up for you to read it yourself, and uh, that letter forms the basis of our show today. So um, um, another thing you can be following up. Now, Elisa brings her personal experience to the table, know, knowing what she knows from actual experience of the, face brother, of the Space Brothers' humility, their love, their camaraderie. Uh, UFOs are not an abstract idea to her, but an experience that has generated a sense of awe, wonder, and love upon contact. So it's my very great pleasure to welcome today um, Elisa Graff. Pleasure to be on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. You know, I've in just um, reminding of, of your 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 bio. It reminds me of um, my first sighting, which occurred with you. So that was a very 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 special moment. Um, but enough about me. <laughs> Why don't you recap for us that ten day uh, that experience you had during the ten day silent retreat and and what it means for you. Well, I want to start by saying that um, actually I was at this silent meditation retreat out in the middle of really very rural California near a um, near Yosemite, actually. Um, and uh, it was on 100 acres. So we were in a really beautiful place. Um, it was in November of 2008. Of course, I had no idea that I was going to have this kind of experience there. I went there to learn Vipassana meditation. Um, it was a very intensive retreat and it was very scheduled. So there was very minimal time to actually be outside because we were meditating about 10 hours a day. Um, so, uh, but the first night that I was there, um, I was just in, in awe looking up at the stars because there wasn't a lot of light pollution where we were. And so you could really see millions of stars and it was just breathtaking, absolutely magical. And um, at nine o'clock after our first meditation on the first evening, I walked outside and I just, I didn't, it was cold. And I, a lot of people just left and went to their beds because we were all preparing for a 4 a.m. wake up call the next day. But I was so enamored of these amazing um, stars. And so I stood and was looking at the, you know, at this beauty. And I realized when I would stop and I would look at a star every now and then, it wasn't a star. It would. It was hovering, and then suddenly it would get brighter, and other lights would come on, and then it would move slowly across the sky and hang on a ridge on the hills across the valley from where I was. 
And I saw as many as six of those on the first night. And I remember thinking, wait, that, that, that couldn't be a helicopter because there was no sound. Um, it didn't really look, I mean, it could have been a plane, I thought, but there was really no sound and, and it was hovering. So um, that was pretty exciting. I was, I was pretty amazed because I had, I had seen a UFO, I thought, in Tokyo in, uh, back in 1990 when I was living there. And um, it was like a triangular craft, but nobody else seemed to be looking at it. It was just me. And I was in a hurry to catch a bus. So I didn't get to spend too much time, but there was some afterglow coming out of it, and it really didn't look at all like a plane. But here I was, um, you know, looking at this nighttime sky and seeing like many of these kinds of things, these phenomena. And I kept thinking, am I really looking at UFOs? This is amazing. I was very excited. Yeah, I wondered how how, how did that make you feel? I mean, oh, I was first, just, you know, uh, I was just I was stunned. I was really, you know, it was just contemplating the possibilities. Um, of course, you know, nobody, I, I couldn't speak to anybody. Nobody else seemed to be looking at them, but, um, you know, I really had a hard time sleeping because I was just so excited thinking about it. So then the next day, um, I got up and we had a very intense program, as I said, um, and about 6am we would have breakfast. And so I went outside and walked to 10 minutes to the, uh, to the center where we had our meals and um, I was looking up the blue sky, and I noticed some small white, what looked to me like little white jets flying above. And every now and then they'd make a trail, but they didn't seem to be going anywhere. And I thought to myself, that's kind of odd. <laughs> but I didn't really have a whole lot of time to look at them. I just, you know, noticed them, and I thought my, my eye was drawn to them. Um, and... Uh, they seemed to also be able to start and stop their trails or the trails weren't consistent. And so then, um, you know, I kind of forgot about it and I got back in step with the program. Uh, but every time I was outside for a short period, my eye would be drawn up and I would be kind of looking at these uh, small, what I what looked to me like small white jets. And um, they didn't seem to make any sounds. And they seemed to just be hanging about. They did not seem to be going in a specific direction to go. You know, they didn't like fly from one end and then you lost sight of them. They were just sort of hanging around. So right. I would see usually one or two at a time. And um, at some point in the first or second day that I was I was at the retreat, I had this thought, you know, maybe they're not jets. You know, I, I'm not sure why, but I just thought, you know, that's kind of curious. And so um, after a while, I kind of thought, you know, they could be UFOs, I guess. And I, I thought I'd try an experiment. So I'd have, you know, periods of maybe a half an hour where I was outside taking a walk around a pond. And um, so I had this thought, I'm going to think a thought to them and see what happens. And I usually, as I said, I saw one or two at a time. Mm -hmm. And um, so I said, you know, if you can hear my thoughts... I would like to see maybe four of you at once in one part of the sky at some point. And then I left it alone and I forgot about it. And the next day I was walking again out by the pond. And sure enough, my eye was drawn up and there were four of these small craft flying very close to one another in a way that jets don't fly near each other. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So um, I thought, oh, wow, that's interesting. But of course, my mind was not totally fully um, accepting of this as a possibility. So I just thought, well, maybe I'm just imagining things. And did so, you remember that you had asked for this? Yes, yes, of yeah. course. Okay. You know, that's, very, that's very odd. So then um, I basically, I, I thought, well, you know, I'd really like to see you closer because I can't really make much out. You're so far away. They were flying very high and they seemed to be going very fast. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, so then, you know, I forgot about it again because we had this intense schedule. So I was back in the meditation hall the next morning at 1030 in the morning. I suddenly was in meditation. I suddenly had this impulse to go outside. It's a really interesting experience because I was really focused on the meditation. And suddenly I just said, oh, I have to go outside. So uh, we were allowed to, you know, leave the hall as needed. So I got up and I went outside. I was the only person outside. And I was walking across the courtyard at 1030 in the morning. And then one of these crafts flew down fairly low over the trees and there was no sound at all. Uh, and they seemed to have short wings, um, you know, like, like a shuttlecraft and they were like a brilliant white light, uh, white, bright color. Right. 
So, Lisa, it was uh, tell us about the the nature of this telepathic contact and telepathy in general from your point of view. Well, I want to make it clear that I don't I know I I don't consider myself to be telepathic. At least um, I think all of us have a latent capacity for it. I mean, I expect that at some point in the future we will develop it more um, accessibly. But um, essentially, I was at a meditation retreat, and it was um, a silent meditation retreat, which um, for anybody who's done one, it's an incredible experience and, uh, you know, noble silence. And so I was in a very heightened state of awareness. And um, I really think that that was also another reason why um, I was more open to having an experience like this, because I think in our daily lives, um, we're so sort of in our heads and so connected to the daily uh, intensity of life that we don't really um, have the sensitivity uh, to these kinds of potential experiences. Um, but, you know, this thing continued. And uh, what happened for me after I first saw them gliding across the treetops, I, I sent another message and I said, can you, can I see you make a cross, like an even armed Aquarian cross in the sky, you know, make a plus sign for me. And the next day I was walking along the path again and one was flying alongside of the path I was on and it made a line in the sky and, and then another one flew across in front of me and made a line over me. So these kinds of experiences continued for the 10 days that I was at this retreat center. And as time went on and I began to realize that this was really happening, um, I started to really tune in even more. And I really felt um, a sense of, I guess, camaraderie um, and a really beautiful sense of um, a blessing. You know, this is a lot of people who've witnessed right. UFOs have had this experience. They feel it's, it's like an amazing blessing is coming over them as they watch the Space Brothers. And um, I think the Space Brothers are very benevolent. And um, as many books have attested to the contactees, um, especially those who are written up on uh, Gerard's website, um, have explained that uh, that the Space Brothers are um, more spiritually and morally evolved than we are in many cases, and that they um, are very expressive of this awareness of their connection to everything and of brotherhood. And I really felt, in a way, I, I, had, I felt that it was being expressed in this connection that I had. And it was, it was absolutely beautiful. It's yeah, really, that was really my experience that. that first time with you as well. This feeling of brotherhood, of absolute connection. Kinship, you know. Yeah, absolute kinship, yeah. It was, it was really remarkable. So it sounds like for many people that's a constant. Um, at that conference, I remember that uh, Benjamin Krem had a wonderful, a wonderful sentence. He said, and he knows well whereof we speak. By the way, folks, um, we will also put up a very fascinating interview that uh, was had um, in uh, 2004, I believe, with uh, Chief Editor Benjamin Krem of Share International Magazine uh, on his experiences uh, with with the UFOs. Uh, he learned to drive... Um, a UFO in his 40s um, before he learned to drive a car. So that's kind of a <laughs> interesting claim to fame. Anyways, getting back to that conference, he said this wonderful thing, which I'm sure you remember as well. The Space Brothers are gently touching the hem of our garment. Yes, I, I do recall that very sentence. Yeah. And I think it was in reference to um, crop circles that he said that, um, you know, they've got this very gentle way of approaching us. They don't want to infringe our free will. They don't want to frighten us. So, Elisa, I'd like us to speak now about the um, relationship of the UFO activity to the emergence of Maitreya and um, uh, the Masters of Wisdom at this time. Well, it seems really clear to me that there's a direct co correlation um, I'm really grateful to have had a foundation myself in understanding the spiritual meaning behind the UFO phenomena through Benjamin Krems and George Damsky's books, um, which draw these parallels. And I also want to say that I have great respect for uh, Gerard Artson's books and his work. He's a consummate researcher, and he ties together these things beautifully in his works. Um, and uh, it's so important to have this essential 
uh, relationship between the increasing visible presence of the Space Brothers on our planet and the externalization of the Masters into our everyday world. Because it's the most tremendous event that's taken place on our planet ever. Um, it's an incredible time that we're living through, and we're all very blessed to be here, I believe. Yeah. Um, Elisa, while we're talking about um, books, I would like to mention Mr. Krem's book as well, uh, The Gathering of the Forces of Light, UFOs and Their Spiritual Mission. Uh, this is uh, another uh, of a very, very uh, good and informative book. It's, uh, it's not uh, a long read, so it's quite enjoyable to go through. The first half of the book details Mr. Krem's own experiences uh, with the UFO phenomena and including his work uh, with George Adamski, who was basically the poster child for the um, UFO phenomena uh, that were so prevalent in the early 50s. He wrote two books uh, that were uh, runaway bestsellers in the United States, which just goes to show the amount of uh, interest in this topic. Uh, that's Adamski. Uh, Mr. Krem himself has written uh, over 16 books on uh, basically uh, Maitreya, his mission, and all of the uh, all kinds of information uh, connected with the emergence of of this great teacher at this time. So, I wonder if you might. Uh, for our, our listeners, touch upon the phenomenon of the star that they are connected with. It was around Christmas of 2008, perhaps, um, that there was a press release uh, put out by Share International about the star that we would be seeing um, in the near future at that time, um, an incredible star in the sky that um, would be bright and see, be seen both day and night all over the world. And um, soon after that announcement was made, um, there were suddenly YouTube reports, you know, uh, and actually news reports from all over the world um, showing that people were seeing the star. They didn't know what it was, but they were taking footage of it with cameras and also with uh, video cameras. Um, sometimes you would see a pulsating on these videos on YouTube. You would see this uh, close-up of uh, this distant object and it looked like it was flickering in different colors and changing uh, size and shape a little bit. But um, people were really drawn to this in the sky and they didn't know what they were looking at because they didn't necessarily know about this information. Um, and a lot of that was collected by Share International Magazine. And uh, another video was actually produced showing a lot of these images um, by um, various people within the Share International group um, showcasing the star. Um, the star is ac actually four uh, giant spacecraft made by different uh, planets in our neighboring solar, you know, neighboring planets in our solar system. Um, it is meant to be sort of a replica of the star of Bethlehem, which was actually also not a star, but a UFO. Um, and I've actually had the great blessing of seeing the star. Um, and that was confirmed. And I also, it was also uh, written up in Share International uh, many people all over the world have seen the star. And in my case, it really honestly looked like it was close enough to touch. It was it was so bright and it was unmistakable. Uh, so it's still visible uh, in different places in the world. Actually, people have also filmed it during the day. Um, so uh, I, I recommend that our that people listening take the, the opportunity to uh, to look up and spend more time looking at the sky and see if they also have a chance to spot the star. You know, that seems to be a common thing. All of the sightings that I have had, you know, were, were in, in the night skies and where there was uh, little to no uh, light pollution. But with the star, the star is visible in just even, even against the cityscape escape of light. Um, just to fill in a couple of details, and again, people can go to the shareinternational.org, share-international.org website and see uh, many, many different views of the stars. It, um, it usually appears low in the sky. It's relatively large compared to most stars. And, um, it, it, it's very lively. It, uh, it sparkles. It twinkles. It changes color. It changes shape. Um, it's, 
it's it doesn't it doesn't really look like a regular star, but you have to be you have to be uh, you, you have to be looking at the sky to see it. Yeah, most most people aren't spending much time looking at the sky. I'm sure um, that was my experience as well. You know that we're all very busy with our lives, and um, but it's an incredible thing to have these experiences and and to be alerted to the fact that there are these these uh, higher realities um, and. Um, they're all, all these signs are meant to alert us to, and give us a sense of hope and to help us to tune into wonder and become aware of these higher realities and the fact that we're not alone and that we have extraordinary help. And that's, uh, I think, I think that's one of the most important things that I can tell people from my own experience, um, that that there is something going on, and uh, it's just a question of how much we're we're actually taking the time to not just contemplate but tune into it. Absolutely, and then of course um, there's an opening that occurs there. There's a, uh, an expansion in the heart area, I would say, when when we do see any of these phenomena. Yes, absolutely. They're, they're basically another kind of miracle. Would you say, uh, Elisa, that part of the reason you've had these experiences uh, was basically that you were open to them? I'm sure that's part of it. I think that, uh, I mean, it's, um, as I said, I'm really lucky that I had this time to be at this meditation retreat because um, in my daily life, I probably wouldn't have been as tuned in, you know. Um, and I think that that was really the message to me that I need to make more space um, to tune into these to this other reality um, because uh, we're kind of birthing a new reality on our planet. And I think um, the closer we can come to recognizing it as truth, as actually a, a true possibility, um, the more we can make it manifest. And of course, as I think Gerard said this in his interview last week, that um, really it's incredibly important that we not only recognize our essential oneness, but that we make it manifest in our actions in the world. Um, because Maitreya will inspire us, all of humanity, to recognize our essential oneness and to see ourselves as brothers and sisters of one family. We will have an experience of that through his blessing to the world. Um, and this will galvanize us to create a more just and humane world, but we ourselves have to build it. And I think that's um, one of the values of tuning into this other reality that there it's trying to sort of be become reality in, in our manifest daily world. Mm-hmm. And Benjamin Krem also talks uh, quite a lot about the technology of light that the Space Brothers bring us as a gift. George Adamski also spoke a little bit about it, I think. Um, I mean, actually, I'm thinking of the book, um, The Amazing Mr. Lettersworth, which was written as a piece of fiction by Sir Desmond Leslie, who was his co-author on his first book, and um, apparently was sort of inspired by George Adamski himself. Um, and in that book, it outlines the Space Brothers bringing uh, a technology of tremendous um, importance, uh, the technology of light, they bring it to all of the nations on Earth at the same time through the ages of the UN in that story. Um, Benjamin Krem has said that until we renounce war, they can't give us this technology, but it'll be a technology that no one can own and sell, that it'll be available to all of us and will give us free energy that comes from the sun, but not based on the solar energy that we have today. Would this help some of Maitreya, well, Maitreya's key priorities in um, being here now, which are food, shelter, education, and health care for everyone on the planet? Exactly. And as we look at our daily reality today, how, what a golden age that will be. Yes. And I mean, it's just, it's hard to imagine right now uh, companies not selling us power, electricity, you know, having it available to all of us everywhere on the earth. Imagine if that were made manifest, how um, little uh, social justice issues we would have. I mean, how how there wouldn't be inequality in the world because everyone would have access. And uh, so we have this golden civilization ahead of us, as Benjamin Krem has said. 
Um, but of course, we have to build it. We have to make it happen. In this particular segment, I want to talk about a couple of other things that uh, people can see every day for themselves besides the star. Um, let's start with the crop circles, which most people know about, Elisa. What, uh, what would you like to add about them? Well, they've been, they've been, of course, occurring all over the world. Uh, we just had a really amazing one. I live in Germany now, and we had a beautiful one in southern Germany uh, that a lot of German people that I know actually went all the way down to visit. It's pretty far away from here. Um, and people were very inspired. The farmer uh, of that field, I think it was a wheat field, um, was very um, accommodating. Mm-hmm. And people spent a lot of time hanging out. It was a quite a large, uh, I don't know how big the diameter was, but it was absolutely gorgeous. If you just Google uh, Southern German crop circle, you can probably find it um, online. Great. Design. So uh, the crop circles, according to Benjamin Krem, are um, not only this, the calling cards of the Space Brothers, and uh, in many cases in England, uh, because Maitreya is actually living in London, but also that they are um, occurring in the same place frequently because um, they're sort of energizing various uh, points of like chakras on our planet. Um, it, it has also to do with this coming technology of light. And so um, that's that's what I remember Benjamin yeah. said about them. The, I, I remember that too. I went to actually visit uh, some of them in Avesbury, England, which is, you know, a very, a very famous spot for them. And um, it was it was quite an experience to walk in in a crop circle. And one thing that um, really touched me was, you know, we had talked we had touched upon uh, harmlessness as one of the guiding principles of the Space Brothers. And um, when I when I was in those crop circles, you could see that the wheat had been bent to, um, you know, form those patterns, but it wasn't really harmed in any way. It like it wasn't the, the, you know nothing was burned or singed or cut or you know any of those things. Um, the 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 patterns were just very gently bent over, um, uh, you know bent over bent over um, stalks and and what have you, and and uh, actually walking in in those patterns as well was was very. Um, it, it helped you with this stillness that you talked about earlier the you know to be able to sort of detach from our busy busy lives and busy minds and and be present to the phenomenon um there was something about there was something about the whole atmosphere that that led very very well into that um and of course you know people can google all kinds of patterns and it's interesting to see uh, how how much more intricate they've become over the over the many years they've been happening yeah, it's hard for me to imagine that people think that human beings are making all of these crop circles, um, which in some cases appear in you know while people are actually in the fields, and suddenly uh, you know there's a there's a crop circle there. There've often been people. I've I've also heard accounts of people actually thinking that the pattern. A group of Japanese uh, tourists once thought the pattern, and then it occurred. You know, in the field. Ah. Oh. So there's all kinds of interesting phenomena associated with the with the crop circles. I I'm sure that there may be somebody out there experimenting with making them, uh, you know, besides the Space Brothers. But the intricate designs, the size of them, um, is pretty remarkable. Uh, it's really quite quite incredible for anybody who hasn't already seen a crop circle, um, at least online. Um, and I've also heard accounts of people visiting them and saying that the energy is quite amazing. Mm-hmm. I haven't I haven't been in one myself. So um, that will be, uh, again, uh, you know, continuing on the theme of awe and wonder that, uh, that, that um, contact with our Space Brothers um, evokes. Uh, we're just about out of time, Elisa. Is there anything else that you would like to share with, uh, or last words you would like to share with our listeners? I think I would just encourage people to uh, keep an open mind and keep an open heart and recognize that the space people are our brothers and sisters um, and that uh, there's remarkable things happening on our planet at this time and uh, 
we, we are all very grateful and lucky to be here so that we can be part of this transformation taking place on our planet. And I'm thank you for letting me share my message. Next show is on miracles happening all over the world. And this from milk drinking statues in India to healing waters uh, springing up in various parts of the world. This is your host, Diana Gold-Holland, broadcasting from Vancouver, and yes, with a message evolved for sure for everyone. It's a very great honor today to be uh, hosting a show on miracles with the producer of our show, Frances Oman. She is a writer and TV producer who has won numerous awards for her documentaries about miracles and the emergence of Maitreya. Her work has been seen on PBS and the Discovery Channel, and she is now making a new documentary called Countdown to Now, Quantum Leap for Planet Earth. It documents the fulfillment of predictions made by Maitreya, the world teachers, decades ago about our current crises and the grassroots solutions now in progress. So it's my very great honor and excitement to welcome you, um, Francis. How are you? I'm just great. Okay, that's good. So to begin with, tell us what a maven is and what led you to become the miracle maven. Yes, well, um, a maven is actually a Yiddish word originally, and it just means an expert or a connoisseur. And since... Um, about, should I say how many years ago? Let's just call it decades ago. (laughs) (laughs) We know where that's coming from. (laughs) Um, I was a meditator and a student of uh, various new thought practices. And I was realizing that my greatest creativity as an artist and as a journalist, because I have both skills as my background, They all flourished, both the art and the writing, when I approached my work with a vision that anything is possible. Not like, not like I believe, you know, I could build a skyscraper with my baby finger tomorrow, anything is possible. But just looking at my life and then seeing what kind of draws me um, forward. And so when I heard Benjamin Krem speak in San Francisco, and he talked about the possibility of really ending hunger. Well, I happened to have been a videographer for the Hunger Project when I went to hear Mr. Krem, so I was already on board. It was actually um, quite a few years later that I connected the dots, because when uh, Earhart, who founded the Hunger Project, originally announced the Hunger Project, he said to, I don't know how many, it was probably an auditorium full of a thousand people, he said, um, sometime around now, there's been a shift in the wind. The end of hunger is an idea whose time has come. And later, years later, when I connected the dots, I realized that he said that two weeks after Maitreya appeared, made his first appearance on this planet in Nairobi, Kenya. He appeared out of thin air, thin air, did several healings, and then disappeared. This was corroborated. We've talked about it on I other shows. We've talked about it on, the, on other shows. So this was about two weeks uh, after that. Yeah, so I figured that was pretty much a miracle, and I was feeling pretty smug about being on the right path and everything. Um, so it was also covered on CNN. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it, I, I was definitely on a path, and um, my skills were in videography, so um, my background in art, really art was a spiritual practice for me. And between the art and the um, the approach I had to documenting facts, fact-checking in my, in my work, 
was an odd combination, but a perfect one for somebody who was going to set out to document miracles. <laughs> wow, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of our listeners would think, you know, first and foremost of those religious ones that are occurring, you know, the bleeding statues and the the, the oil smelling of roses and, you know, uh, those kinds of, of miracles that are happening for the religious people. But, you know, you and I both contend that there are other kinds of miracles happening that are just as miraculous. And that includes political things like uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and um, you know, peace miracles of that type, the various rapprochements that occur suddenly and people say, what happened between those enemies? And uh, so we have we have religious miracles, we have political miracles, and we have peace miracles as well, and and also all of the healing miracles that um, uh, I know you have many stories on that front, and we talked about several of those with Patricia Peachon. I just wanted to mention uh, another one of these religious ones that occurred this week when the image of uh, a beautiful image of the um, Virgin Mary appeared in a window in kind of. Um, oil slick type colors and was that um in marietta georgia that's the marietta georgia one and people of all religious persuasions are flocking to see that uh, because well, that's unusual well well no not really because um you know most of the th miracles things that i followed up do attract people because it awakens in them they, they want to see it for themselves and then it awakens in them i just it, somehow a, a feeling of expectancy, of hope that, you know, something's going on here. The mystery of it draws sure. people and they well, want to see it with their own eyes. They, you know, when I was working on my uh, Crosses of Light documentary, I, what, what I was surprised at when you said that is when I was doing that documentary, there were throngs of people in line and the police were out in force just kind of keeping order. Not that there was any danger, but, you know, just directing traffic around all the lines, but they were all deeply devout Christians. So when you said that at this um, new miracle in Georgia that happened this week, that people of all different religions are going, that's, that's what's happening is things are happening amongst all the different religions. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just, there's a lot of commonalities between the religions and, you know, quite a, Apart from the things you mentioned that are the most commonly known, um, Christian miracles, um, there's miracles happening in so many different religions that people don't hear about. It. You know what? The thing is that, that I, yes, they're miracles, but to me, they're signs. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they're, they're all connected like what about your white buffalo story that that um, that yeah. you, you told me about? I was working on um, a three-part series on miracles for with a Discovery Channel called Miracle Quest, and um, one of the stories we did was on the white buffalo born, and as a sign to the um, Native Americans of a great coming of uh, a new spiritual time. But another one was a red heifer that was born and the Jewish, um, what would you say, um, tradition is that when a red heifer is born, and in both cases, a white buffalo and a red heifer, it's like it's like one in a million million. So it really, it, you know, they didn't have any lineage of white or red in them at all. Right. So they were real miracles. Yeah. And um, so when I interviewed a rabbi for the Crosses of Light, um, documentary, he said also that many of the, the Jewish scholars say this is the time when the Messiah comes. So um, that was interesting. Then in the Muslim religion, you know, they don't they don't believe in using um, graven images. I don't know if they call it, they call it graven images, but they don't use iconography. That's right. in, the, in their right. religion at all. So the miracles that have been happening in the Muslim within the Muslim faith for those people um, have been things like this lovely young um, Muslim girl who was crying tears of crystal Ooh. that were so sharp that, you know, they were coming out of the corners of her eyes and they weren't cutting her at all. And she 
said when interviewed that um, she had first had a vision of um, a man on a white horse. Now, it's it's a tradition, a Buddhist tradition, that the great new teacher is going to come. There's a Himalayan legend that the great new teacher will come on a white, all dressed in white and a white horse. And that's what she described. Right. That and was had, the legend of the Chintamani stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, remember we, we reported previously on this, uh, the white horse is also a very powerful uh, symbol for, for Muslims. And that's what this girl, girl was. Yes. And, and then at Tahrir Square on CBS, see, the cool thing is, I just like to collect things and put them all in a, together and see what they mean together. And that's what I've been doing with miracles. So when uh, Tahrir Square was happening and um, on CBS News, here is this glowing image of a white, a, a person dressed in white on a white horse driving through the clouds. It crowds. It looked, it looks kind of like a ghost, but it was definitely in there. It was on several different um broadcast stations and so there's that white horse again so francis you have directly experienced some miracles of your own i'd like you to tell us about that first i have to preface it by saying i have um you know an an angel and a devil on each shoulder i have an angel that's just open to all the miracles in the world and believes so many things i just do it intuitively and it's like painting a picture. And then on, on my other shoulder, I have this little devil, which is a journalist saying, um, this really needs to be scientific. And so I really do check my facts, but I've had several miraculous experiences that I have not included in any of my documentary work because I have to uh, maintain my journalistic um, objectiveness. <laughs> okay, well, tell us one. <laughs> tell us something really personal that has touched okay. you. Okay, well, I went to document the first cross of light that appeared in El Monte, uh, east of Los Angeles. It was glowing through a frosted window, and I was told where it was, and I climbed up a ladder with my camera on my eye. <laughs> I mean, you know, at my eye at the camera and look through the window. So I didn't even see the cross with my bare eyes the first time. And I said, oh, my God. And this just was like something like physically just went whoosh to my heart. And um, so I, um, I kept working on the documentary. And I remember one day during that period of time, I had severe migraines. And unless I was working on the Cross of Light documentary, I was in bed in pain. There was something about my commitment to the documentary that just got me up. And so I had finished, oh, I don't know, the fourth or fifth day of interviewing all these people that had been healed of cancer and they'd been healed of drug addiction and they'd been, um, um, yeah, I hear the whole community really changed, you know, like the delinquent kids shaped up and got yeah. grades in schools. And, uh, you know, I, I heard, weren't there marriages reconciling and all kinds of stuff, like yeah. really spreading throughout the whole community. Yeah, it, absolutely. And so at the end of this one day of interviewing several people, I was sitting there and I was sitting about two feet from one of the crosses of light. I just finished interviewing a woman whose doctor had said she couldn't have another baby because her uterus was ruined. And um, she was holding the baby that she gave birth to after the doctor Mm -hmm. did that. Um, And I suddenly realized that I hadn't had any migraine that entire day. They were gone. And I just started weeping. It was Uh. just... You know, it's like sometimes you just don't notice when the pain leaves, you know, (laughs) you're just so used to it. So that was a really important migraine because I'd had migraines severely for 10 years. Wow. Another one was um, not during that filming. It was, in fact, just in my private life. You know, unlike a lot of other spiritual teachers, Maitreya is not in the habit of manifesting things, you know, out Mm -hmm. of thin air. Right. Although I did hear, the CNN report said that he 
pulled out of his pocket after he had a cross that was like a glowing made out of light cross. Mm -hmm. So, um, but other than that, he doesn't go around manifesting things. Well, he also appears in all different kinds of guises to people. Some of the listeners have undoubtedly had encounters with him as a homeless person or um, a very straight businessman or. Okay. But wait a minute. I want to get back to this. Uh, so oh. he's not usually manifesting things. So obviously he manifested something for you. He What's the story? He did. He did. Um, I was, uh, my dad had died and I was very depressed. I was prone to depression and um, that just sent me into a tailspin and I didn't think I was going to be able to make it to this business meeting I was supposed to show up at. And I was waiting in the hotel lobby and along comes this very nondescript, gray suited businessman walking at a kind of a very strange quick clip down the center of the lobby and he just suddenly veered over towards me and he stuck his hand flat out into the air right over my lap and for whatever reason I stuck my hand straight out in front of me several inches under his hand and and there in the air between our hands suddenly there was this shiny silver stone or something that fell into my hand and I looked at it and it said hope Oh, there's a picture. (laughs) Um, Well, that's not the end because the depression completely lifted. And I went to the business meeting and gave a very inspired presentation when I was actually considering going home. So let me just make a point here. okay? like we always we always mention this in our show so that people know where we're coming from, that we on this team believe that we are not alone on this planet that we have help of a very extraordinary time at this extraordinarily difficult moment for for our planet, and that that help comes in the form of the reappearance of the Christ and the Masters of Wisdom, the Christ being also the Messiah for the Jews, the Mimamadi for the Muslims, etc., etc. He is, in fact, the world teacher predicted to come at this time, at the beginning of this new age. Gautama Buddha was the one that that said another Buddha like myself will come at the dawn of the new age and his name will be Maitreya, he actually said. Buddha got that right, but all of the other religions have been predicting the coming, the, the, the second coming for the Christians, the Messiah for the Jews, etc. You know, they've all got it there. And there are a lot of people who may be our religious, but certainly you know, it's there's a tension throughout the world now. We know that the, the shoe is going to drop somehow, and maybe just maybe, um, it, it it won't be uh, you know in a bad way. If we call forth the help of these teachers who are in working and helping every day in our midst as it is now, anyways, um, that those are our premises, and we're sticking to them. So let's hear some about something about the miracles you covered on your Crosses of Light documentary. We've had um we've had a question come in on Facebook about that from a, a listener. Oh, you mean asking me to tell some things that happened there? Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh okay. when you when you were the so, some of the miracles that you covered in your Crosses of Light documentary. Yeah. Um. Well, it was interesting because what you were saying about the world teacher being here for people of all religions and also of no religion because one of the people that had a cross of light appear was an atheist. She was a woman who was having a creative block. She was a painter and um, she just couldn't paint. And um, she went into the bathroom and there, most of these uh, crosses have been manifested on, on frosted textured glass in bathrooms. Cause that's the place that kind of glass occurs. The, the normal shape on if light is shined through one of them is kind of a, a normal square but she went in there and suddenly there was this cross of light and suddenly her creativity returned and she painted like crazy and she was just thrilled and when I interviewed her she said the same thing that people clear across town with completely different backgrounds a Muslim man who had a cross a, a devout Catholic who had a cross and this um young woman who was an artist, and they were all saying the same thing, and they had never met each other. They were saying, this means the end of hunger, the end of pollution, the end of war, 
And um, I found that to be really amazing. And then 20 years later, I was working with the Discovery Channel on this Miracle Quest um, series of documentaries. And so they had the idea, well, let's be a little bit skeptical and see if these crosses are still burning over in El Monte, east of of uh, Los Angeles. Right. But let's let's not go to one of the Christians. Let's go to the guy who was named Muhammad, who had who was a Muslim, and he had a cross of light. So I said, sure. So um, when we went back to visit him, the cross was still glowing, um, and um, he told a story. He had heard about these crosses. And he was an electronics kind of a guy and interested in stuff like that and wanted to either disprove it or see if it. So he had shown a flashlight through his glass because there has to be a single point on the other side of the glass. And it was, you know, this. A single point of light, you mean? Like a a flashlight. Okay. Yeah, like a flashlight. So he shined a flashlight and it just had this regular square. Well, meanwhile, his baby was born and had a horrible illness. It was some like black spots all over his body and it was very. And he was sitting there holding the baby in a rocking chair and suddenly said to himself, he just kind of knew, I've got a cross of light. He went back and tested the same window and lo and behold, there was a cross of light and the baby was completely healed. And when they did the Discovery Channel redo of visiting him, his son was at that time going to college. So oh, fantastic. So sometimes these things stick around. You know, I had that kind of thing happen too. I was giving a lecture on the crosses of light one time and somebody brought me a piece of that glass that they had found in a, you know, a value village and the cross formed right before my eyes as I held that glass in my hand. It was incredible. Look at the um, cross of light picture that's there because people have had extraordinary healings just looking at the cross. You don't have to be in the presence of one. If we can just put one other thing out there, um, look at the story of the hand of Maitreya that is there because that is another extraordinary miracle that we've talked about uh, in, in other shows. It can be invoked for healing and it is a direct connection with Maitreya. Visit us on Facebook at hashtag Planetary Makeover. This show has been a production of planetarymakeover.org At our website, we have a link to our bi-weekly live show at 5 p.m. Mondays Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time. At our website, we also have a link to our archives and a selection of our shows. For more background info, visit www.shareinternationalwest.org That's shareinternational-west.org. For related books in DVDs and CDs by Benjamin Krem on the emergence of Maitreya, the world teacher, please go to share-ecart.com. That's share-ecart.com. We also invite you to watch another show that we really love entitled What in the world is happening? And that show, which you don't want to miss, is produced by Share International Canada. Please view episodes of What in the World is Happening on demand at youtube.com forward slash at message of hope weekly. It will be live streaming mostly on the second Saturday of every month at the Share International Canada Facebook page.